well. It's good to be with you. Um, I don't know about you, but the last couple weeks for me have been challenging. Not because of anything that's really going on in my family or in my, in my life personally, but the last, uh, the last couple of weeks with the two conventions, the two political conventions that have been going on, have been a challenge. And, um, and so what I want to do today is I want to talk about um, some of what's going on in our world today related to that. But I, I want you to sort of relax. I'm not, I'm in no way, shape, or form am I going to tell you what I believe politically. I'm not going to ask you to change any political beliefs. I'm not going to have a petition for you to sign. I'm not going to suggest that you stop doing something you're doing now or to start doing something you're not doing or who you're going to support or any of that. So we're just going to create a little bit of a political party free zone if we can. And we want to look at the main text today, uh, Exodus 20, and maybe see what God has to say to us about his worldview related to how we can all live together for the common flourishing. So before we do all that, and before I step into some deep water without a life preserver, let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to ask you to be with us as our teacher and our guide today. And I want to I want to pray what we've, we've already read, Psalm 27. One thing I have asked of the Lord that, that I will seek after and that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And that I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon the rock. And I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said to seek my face. And my heart says to you, O Lord, your face, your face, I seek. So hide not your face from me and turn not your servant away in anger because you have been my help. You have been my help. You, O Lord, will take me in. Father, that's what we need. That's what I need. And I pray that blessing on everyone here today that we would seek your face, we require of you and that we may find you here in your temple. We ask you to be our teacher and our guide. We ask you to come to us in our minds and in our hearts that you would give us peace and hope and love and grace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pray these things. Amen. So I didn't watch very much, maybe too much, of the political conventions that went on in Cleveland and Philadelphia, but... You know, hello everybody in the world, I guess, in Facebook, hello, uh, because of a sort of, a, I don't know if it's a bad habit or not, but uh, about every day, every other day or so, I sort of check in on Facebook and 
even though I didn't watch a lot of the, of, of the convention coverage, and I, I do read the paper every day, um, but my Facebook, so-called Facebook friends, sort of kept me in touch with many of the different controversies and statements that were going on. And I, and I have to say that many of them express themselves in often uncharitable ways, which is exactly what we see many in the media doing as well. And perhaps we all sort of take our lead from our various political leaders, both present and past, many of which seem to have no reservation at all for their often reckless demonizing of the opposing sides of any political issue you want to look at. All of the bickering and the slander seems to me to be beneath the dignity of our great nation and the values that we claim to hold as self-evident in our founding documents. But as someone who has co-authored a book with a chapter on the importance of having Christ-following disciples in every arena of our society, including especially the profession of government and political leadership, I find myself wanting to turn my eyes away from the moral circus and the moral crisis that is taking place in front of us, but I can't. I can't. And I, and I shouldn't. And let me suggest that as painful as it may be at times, you shouldn't either. We can't put our heads in the sand and pray real hard and hope that something will change. Now, I, again, I want you to relax. I'm not going to offer any sort of partisan uh, opinions. Again, this is a, it's a politically free zone for a few minutes in terms of party. But what I am going to try to talk about and focus your attention and mind back to are these invaluable truths that we find in Exodus 20. And I'm going to argue that Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, really is the only means, the only means through which we can all get what we want and what we need. In Exodus 20, God provides us the means through which all humanity is able to attain the highest and best objectives for our cultural, social, and political institutions. So let's read this. Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and all your works be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is watching your gate. 
For in the six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. May God bless the reading of his word. So what do we have to do? What what do we have to do? Here we are, 21st century Americans in Southern California, living, quite frankly, in one of the most uh, wealthy and prosperous generations to ever inhabit the planet. How do we take these ancient words and apply them today to our life? Well, in order to do that, I'm going to suggest that we're going to have to do something. And the first thing that we're going to have to do is to repent. Repent. Now, let me quickly explain repentance. Repentance got a very bad name, and it's been misinterpreted often very badly, and it's also been misapplied. Repentance in Scripture isn't directly related to sin. Now, most of you are going, what? Because most of you understand the word repentance coming from a preacher that with a bony finger that is yelling at you to repent. Repent. Sometimes it's a lot louder than that, and sometimes veins and red faces are, you know, bulging. And we get the idea that repentance is all about, you're bad. Stop being bad. You sinner. It's often connected. But it's not actually connected like that in the scripture. Now, you're, here, here we go. You're going to know that I'm a theology professor because I'm going to trot out some Greek on you, okay? The Greek word for repentance is actually two words, and it's a very interesting combination of two words. The first word, or the word is metanoia. That's the Greek word for repentance. And, and those, those two words, are, or that one word is two words put together. The first one is the word meta which means to change or go beyond or to go above, okay? Like metamorphosis is a change, right? To a beyond the existing transformational change. So when a butterfly goes through metamorphosis, it changes, okay? Meta. And the second word is noia, which comes from the Greek word nous, which means to think or to reason or, or can be translated mind. And so the word repentance is about rethinking your thinking, to go beyond your current reasoning on a situation or circumstance, to reconsider your considerations. And so when John the Baptist and Jesus come preaching very early on in the the Gospels, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, they're not saying, hey, sinner, repent because you're bad people. No, they're saying rethink the decisions that you've made in your life in light of this new reality which is called the kingdom of God. See, I can repent about the way I cook a chicken. 
which may not have, well, sometimes it does have to deal with sin, but not, you know, not, not necessarily. I can repent about the way I change a tire. I can repent about any activity that needs to be rethought. It's not necessarily, but it can be related to sin. And so what God is saying is, repentance is about looking at your life and thinking about how your life is going and whether or not you need to rethink what you think you know and what you may not know about what is good and right and true. And here's how repentance and our political environment go together, I think. Our political institutions were set up originally to seek what was formerly known as the common good. Did you know that? The common good. In fact, many states and cities still call themselves a commonwealth. And that means that a city or a state or a village was initially organized specifically to seek and attain the common flourishing or the holistic prosperity for the benefit of all its members. And that flourishing means, of course, much more than financial flourishing. It also includes health and welfare and education and protection and shelter and nourishment and peace. What the Bible calls shalom. Now you know this. But these needs that we all have for common flourishing are not new to the United States. We see these needs being sought by cities and nations throughout all history. We see that these needs are manifested also in the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. And even before that, for as long as human beings have organized themselves, we have been seeking for ways not just to survive, but to thrive. And the big question Really, the question that comes up over and over and over, and right now, this question is just ringing on every bit of media, in every neighborhood, on on the signs of people that have put something in in their yard. The question that is being asked, and that will continue to be asked for as long as human beings inhabit this planet, is how? How do we thrive and not just survive? How do we attain attain holistic well-being? And over the millennia, different people groups offer different sets of ideas as to how that is best accomplished. Now, there are countless proposals and rationales and objectives and special interests and motivations that lay under every one of these proposals. And we are hearing them endlessly expressed over the primary elections and then in the general election. But in, in the end, Any form of government, whether it is monarchy or dictatorship or an aristocracy or a democracy or a commune, some person or some people group will offer their reasoning and then enforce what they believe is good and best for them and their constituency. That's the way it works. So let me suggest to you that in Exodus 20, God is giving us some really good, tried and true, divine wisdom on the way we're supposed to live. And it's critical that we realize that God has, in fact, given us the wisdom that we need 
to learn how to live our lives to the full, to its fullest capacity. And here's why. Why has God done this? As good as many of our leaders have been and will be in the future, no human being will ever be able to solve the core issues that plague the human condition because the human condition cannot be remedied by a human solution since the entirety of the human race and the project of humanity itself is God's. God made us. You could say God owns us. We cannot solve our problems, men and women, because we are our greatest problem. Now that may be hard to hear. But what Jesus comes along and says, and what God is telling us right here in Exodus 20 is, you can't fix yourself. You need to be redeemed. And the only person that can redeem us is not a mortal. It's not a human being. The only way we can be redeemed, the only way we can find the flourishing life that God has provided is to be saved from ourselves by our creator and our sustainer, King Jesus. So this is all one big lead-in. I haven't actually started to preach yet. So, this is all one big lead-in to what I want to say about Exodus 20. It's always a good time to repent. But right now, I think we should especially benefit, we could especially benefit from looking at this Exodus text and consider what these truths offer, not only in terms of our personal benefit, but what benefits might exist if applied to our communities, our neighborhoods, our businesses, our nation, and even the world. But look, when we repent, when we rethink our thinking at the same time, we have to decide what we're going to replace our thinking with. See, I think we've developed a wonderful way of telling people what they are saved or delivered from. But I don't think we're nearly as good at articulating and then demonstrating what we are saved to. Because make no mistake, we are saved to something, not just from something. And this is what the Israelites understood. Yes, they were saved from slavery and bondage to Pharaoh. But what God is doing in Exodus 20 is he's giving them the opportunity to be saved to a new life. And right here, in this opportunity for them to rethink what it means to be human, for the first time, as newly freed ex-slaves, they have a time in the desert for repentance to work. And for it to work well, God knows that they need a vision of a life that they're transformed into. Let me give you an example of, of, of what I mean by this. A few years ago, my youngest daughter, who's sitting in the front row, who's now cringing and wanting to actually dive under the chair, 
a few years ago, we went out and we were going to try to learn to play golf. And it was a challenge for any of you that, that have tried to, to learn to play golf. And she was out there, we went out on the, the driving range, and she would hit every ball badly. 50, 60, 70 in a row. To the point, I know, to the point where she was losing hope that she would ever be able to feel what it's like to hit a ball well. Now, what we could do, this is kind of a, a silly little analogy, we could say, hey, JC, we forgive all those bad shots. We forgive them all. You're forgiven. You can start anew. Great. Oh, I'm forgiven. But she still doesn't know how to hit the ball straight. See, it's not enough just to have a vision of forgiveness. What we also have to have is something that, a vision of the life that we're saved to, not just what we're saved from. And until we can learn how to live our lives on the straight and narrow, it's only then that JC can learn how to enjoy the game of golf and that we can enjoy how to learn to live the game of life. See, I'm arguing that we need a vision of something grander, something clearer and truer than what I've seen our political parties offering right now. And and in order to properly or fully rethink our existing life, we're going to need a vision of what life should be like and can be like. And once we have a vision of what that can be, it will actually engage our will. Now I've got something I can choose other than what I'm currently doing. And this is what Jesus is actually advocating for to his disciples when he suggests that they come follow him around. Why? Why are they following him around? So that they can actually taste and see the life that he's offering as an alternative to the life that they've been living. It's a real transition. They have to taste and see and experience that God is good. So what does all that have to do with Exodus 20? It's in the Ten Commandments where we receive the life, the vision of living with oneself, with God, and with others in this big, beautiful, and awe-inspiring world that we're given. Exodus 20 is the start of the divine vision for attaining the potential for what human beings both individually and collectively can attain. And all of this is laid out very directly and plainly in what many in the Jewish community both now and then throughout history have called the ten words from God. The ten words sketch out the big, beautiful, intimate relationship that God intends to have with this new nation of Israel. And this vision is then picked up on and expanded on by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. But Exodus 20 now is the first time that we see this vision of how God intends for all of us to live with him and to live with each other. Now there's a lot of ways that we could look at what's going on here in Exodus 20, but I'm just going to focus on one big idea, which is um, what I think the Ten Commandments as God's establishment of a new vision is really trying to do. And the one big idea that I think God is trying to do here is that he's establishing a parental covenant. A parental covenant. 
God is restating in Exodus his covenantal love and devotion to Israel, just as he did with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, despite all their faults and all their foils. God was committed to those patriarchs and was present with them despite all of their significant flaws. But what we see now happening in Exodus is God's not just making commitments to individuals. Now he's promising his love and devotion to all Israel collectively. But, but, this relational bond is a two-way street. It's a two-way street. It's conditional. Now, hear me, hear me clearly. God's love for you and I and for the people of Israel is unconditional. But the quality of the relationship that we have with God is conditional. It is conditioned on your faith and mine. It's conditioned on Israel's faith and obedience, just like it is with you and I. And this is two things that we often miss. And it's these conditions that I think we need to repent of or rethink and reconsider for ourselves today. So here's the first condition I want to talk about. There's two, and I want to talk about the first one. The first condition is this. Israel must actually have faith. They must have faith. They must not just profess belief in God's goodness. But they actually have to have faith that God is good. Now you may say, well, that's kind of stupid and obvious. No, it's really not. It's one of the things that Israel struggled with throughout the Old and New Testament, and it is still something that is... Is, is largely a greater struggle for us today. And I would argue that this is the primary reason why the Ten Commandments are largely ignored by both Christians and non-Christians alike. We can't miss the fact that what these newly, born, newly reborn slaves are focusing on is what is most near and dear to them. They are focusing on their flesh, their bodies, their desires. They have no concept yet of the magnanimous life that God has prepared for them. They can't hear. They can't see. They do not know that God is good. And that is why the first thing God has to tell them in Exodus 21 is that I'm the guy that saved you. Because they don't know. They do not know. Talk about people of little faith. Actually, they have no faith at all because they have not yet developed a knowledge of who God is or a knowledge that God is good. And the second condition is tied to this. And it's perhaps the most important thing I'm going to say. So if you haven't started listening, you can start listening now, and in a little while you can stop listening and you'll be fine. Here it is. Confidence in God comes from knowing God. Confidence otherwise known as faith, con fide, with faith. Confidence in God comes from knowing God. Let me give an example. So I've never sat on this stool. I don't know that it will hold me up. But I believe, I believe it will hold me up. 
Belief does not require any evidence. There are people that believe there are little green men on Mars. There's no evidence of that fact, but they believe it nonetheless. And they act as if what they believe is true. So I have a friend who professes belief that he thinks that flying in a plane is the safest way to travel. But he won't get on a plane. See, the difference between professing belief and actually believing, true belief requires you to act as if what you say you believe is true. Here's a little thing, a little nugget for free. We always act up to the level of our true beliefs. We always act up to the level of what we truly believe. We profess a lot of belief in things that we don't actually believe. Profession of belief is very, very different than actually having belief. So I'm professing that I believe the stool will hold me up. Now I'm going to act as if what I say I believe is true. A little shaky, but it's holding me up. Now the minute I sat on this chair and it absorbed my weight, belief is gone. I have knowledge now. I no longer believe in the stool. I know it. Do I know everything there is about it? No, I don't know everything there is to know about it. I don't know what it's made of. I don't know how old it is. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how long it's going to last. I don't know how long it's going to last. But I do know what I know. And this knowledge is based on experience. Now, the next time I come to the stool or one like it, I'm not acting in belief. I'm acting upon knowledge. And I'm projecting the knowledge I have in the past into the future. Men and women, that's faith. The evidence of things not seen in the future. You cannot have faith unless you know what you're talking about. It's time for us to stop just professing things. It's time that we develop a knowledge of what it is we're talking about, which forges in us through experience, faith, based upon who we know God to have been in our lives. See, when the Israelites walked out of the desert and Joshua led them into the promised land, what did God tell them to do? You go take some rocks out of the bottom of that river and you stack them on the side of the shoreline and you tell your kids that this day, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, led you out of the wilderness into the promised land. Why stack rocks? Because that's a fact. It's a fact. They have knowledge of that. And that knowledge then tells them God has been good in the past and he's going to be good in the future. That's faith. Knowing about God is not enough. One must also have experiential knowledge that God is good and he is trustworthy to do the good in every case and in every situation. 
See, only when we have come to learn about God's character that we can place our faith and trust in our lives in the wisdom of God's words and instruction and his command, that's when we actually know what it is we're talking about and we experience the good life. It's twofold. Knowledge of God's person precedes our ability to appreciate God's knowledge of our world and how to live. Look, this is as easy to understand as the nose on your face. The people that you do not take advice from are people you don't trust. That doesn't matter whether it's a neurosurgeon or it's the guy fixing your brakes. If you don't trust them, you're not going to take their advice. And men and women, that applies to the Ten Commandments. It applies to the truths that God has given us about how to live. If you do not trust that God's character is good, you're not going to follow his advice not to do what he tells you not to do or to do what he says to do. This is not, you don't have to be an honors college professor to figure that out. And this is precisely why God, the Father, the divine parent, comes to Israel. And I would say, by extension, he comes to us as well, and he states this fact. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to reveal to you what you otherwise would not know. That my ways, my truth, my statutes, my way of life is both true and best. And therefore, if you live like this, if you apply these truths treating each other well, not stealing, not coveting, not lying, not murdering. You will experience life the way I created it to be. You will flourish. You will prosper, which is what everyone really seeks after to begin with in every culture, in every tribe, of every time, in every nation, and in every family. Everyone is searching for how to not just survive but to thrive. And God comes to us and he says, I'm going to tell you how. I'm going to uncover the truth about how you can experience what it is that your soul desperately longs for. And I know what it longs for because I made it. Which is all great if, if you trust, if I trust in the credibility of God. To begin with, look, if we want a good nation, if we want good churches, if we want good families, we have to be good people. And good people, by definition, are those that are righteous. What the Bible calls people of, here's another Greek word, dikaiosune. It's another great word that means the ability to both know and do the good. You can't have one without the other and be righteous. You can't know what's good and not do it. And you can't have the courage to do the good and not know what good is. You have to be able to both know what the good is and then you have to have the courage to do the good. That's a people of righteousness. Where do we get these kinds of people? Where do we get them? Well, God's plan was to have a group, a nation. Started off with a nation. Now, it's you and me. It's the church. A group of people 
who know him, who trust him. And as a result, they apply his truths and commandments, and then they reap the blessings. And this blessing is available for everyone to see. It's just that simple. And it's also that difficult. So to look at the Ten Commandments as a bunch of joy-killing rules that rob us from our freedom is one of the biggest and most evil of lies. It goes back to that original lie in the garden. The serpent basically says, God can't be trusted. He's holding back all the good things from you. And this lie tells us that we've got to get out from under God's shadow to really live. Now, of course, the God of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Paul and Jesus is good and faithful. But that lie, that ruse that God is slippery, untrustworthy, and self-centered is still very active today. Let me suggest that the Ten Commandments set up the parameters, the sidelines, or in baseball, you could say the foul lines, where in the game of eternal life, the blessed life, the moral life, the good life is lived and experienced. And then Jesus does, what Jesus does in the New Testament is he deepens the application of what the Ten Commandments initially set up for us. Jesus' teaching on the Sermon of the Mount is directly in line with the sort of life that God originally initiates right here in Exodus 20. And if we live outside those parameters, we are literally taking our life into our own hands. And when we do, we run afoul of God's game plan for all humanity. So, you're thinking maybe, so what? What's the so what moment? What is it that I want you to take away from this? Here's the so what. If we, like our Israeli brothers and sisters before us, are expected to live in and flourish by God's words, his ways, then we've got to be obedient and apply these truths. It's just that simple. When we do, when we apply these truths, we become, like Jesus said, a light on a hill that can't be ignored. With the result of our lives lived in obedience to God, it's virtually impossible not to call attention to this unique, this odd, this often countercultural, counterintuitive worldview that we call Christianity. When we place our confidence in the goodness of God and then apply the wisdom of God and we thrive as a result, we become living witnesses that are able to testify to why we are flourishing and who is responsible. It's not us. We did not come up with these on our own. These are his. And when we are able to do that, when we flourish, we are able to say, as Paul said, I know whom I have believed in. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. What is that commitment? What is that commitment? What has Paul committed to him? Everything. Everything. All that I am, all that I have, all that I ever will be. This is how people will know 
that we are disciples of Jesus. It will be obvious. When we experience the love underneath these reveals truths and we apply these truths, we are enabled to live a certain kind of life even in the midst of pain and trouble. There's a joy, a grace, a peace that transcends all understanding. But at the same time, as my wife likes to say, it makes perfect sense. That's God's agenda to change the world. It's a revolution of one heart at a time. His plan is to allow people to taste and see that he's good. I could talk a long time, I promise, even longer than I have, about all the philosophical and moral brilliance and virtues inside the Ten Commandments. I could talk about how societies who have helped these and applied these tenets have thrived and other societies down through the ages that have ignored them have struggled But instead of focusing on all those important arguments, let me just ask you to imagine what it would do to your heart and mind to think about these commands as very simply 10 words of love. And this is where I think we often miss the real power of the Ten Commandments. They are good news. They are gospel. They are God's best for us. I can remember like it was yesterday, bringing my oldest daughter, our first child, into our rented little home for the first time. It was a very special day. Now she's going to want to crawl under the, the chair. All the trauma and the danger of the birth was over, and we were really starting our little life together, her mother and I and our little girl, for the first time in our own little space in the world. I remember sitting in my favorite chair and and weeping with joy as I held that little bundle of life in my hands. And I, I introduced myself to her. That may sound sort of funny, but I did. I said, Taylor, I'm your daddy. And I told her how amazingly her existence had affected me already. It's only been a couple hours. And that I was so glad, so glad, and I still am, that she's my little girl. And I told her that one of the greatest joys of my life would be to love her, her entire life. And I promised to feed her and clothe her, which has gotten really expensive, And protect her. And I promised, and I promise you still, I'll always do what I think is best. And I also said that I was excited about teaching her everything I knew, which as a professor is a lot. <laughs> a lot of long talks, a lot of rolling of eyes, but it, we're working it through. And I told her that I was so excited about experiencing things with her for the first time, like ice cream and sunsets and sandcastles and afternoon naps and, and all the fun discoveries like learning to ride a bike and catch a fish and singing songs and meeting Jesus. 
And there were hard things about life that I was looking forward to too. Scraped knees, math tests, burned fingers, broken hearts. But I promise that in all of it, in the bitter and the sweet, I promised I would be there with her to guide her, to comfort her, to teach her, to correct her as best I could. I was committing myself to her. I was giving her my word. I was passing on the truth, the direction, the provision that I had been given. Men and women, brothers and sisters and friends, this is what God is doing in Exodus 20 with this newly born people of Israel just coming out of slavery they're, weak, they're slavery, they're weak and they're weary and they're needy and they're vulnerable and they have to learn all over again what it means to be a human being. They've forgotten who their father is and he's reminding them again that he's committing to be their daddy. If we were to think about the Ten Commandments as these ten words of love passed on from a father to a child, I think it changes everything. The ten words are words of love and grace that God gives you and me as he cradles us in his loving arms. Arms not too short to save. Arms full of omnipotent grace and protection. Arms stretched out on a cross, scarred by the sting of sin. Arms open wide. To accept and forgive all that's come before and arms ready to provide all that we need for the future. It's these arms, it's these hands, it's these ways, it's these truths that Jesus has made available to you and me. And when tried and then applied, they still are the best answers to the toughest questions and problems we'll ever face. As I close and and as we prepare for communion, let me suggest we think about a few things that may help us during this political season to repent, to rethink our previous thinking about a few important things in our lives. Maybe you need to consider where it is in your life that you just don't believe you can trust God's words. We all have those areas in, their li- in our lives. I know I do. Places where we just have not surrendered our fear and our pride and trusted that God's words of direction and care are trustworthy and good. So we covet. We want someone else's life because we believe their life would be much better than our life. Or maybe in fear we lie or we shade the truth or we hide from the facts because we don't believe we can face the reality of the truth, or we hide and, and try to change reality with our words because we can't face the truth the way it is. Or maybe we give our hearts away and our interests and our time and our passions and our money to other idle pleasures, hoping that they will suffice our hunger for needing our meaning and purpose in life. Where is it that you just can't quite believe that God will come through for you? Where is it that you are willing to ignore God's words for life? 
Where have you taken control of your destiny and ignored God's truth? Today I want to encourage you in joining me in repenting, in rethinking your thinking about how we can find the good life that God has in store for us by realizing he gives us peace, holistic well-being. And that is found in one place and one place only, in those perfectly loving, strong, and faithful arms of a good God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Above every name. Above any name. Above my name. Far above my name. Far above my will. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth and in my heart as it is in heaven. Give us today what we need today. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Lead us away from evil. Guide us into your light, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory now and forevermore. Amen.